Two Real Cinema Club. My name is Andres Lamente. And I am James Rosica. And uh, every episode uh, on the Two Real Cinema Club, we watch two movies, a new movie and an old movie, and then we try to connect the dots. Um, and uh, this episode, um, we've uh, we've gone to hell, basically, haven't we? Hell and back, yeah. Throw in some COVID there on my part, and uh, definitely feels like hell and back. But uh... <laughs> it's, it's going to be it's going to be a slightly downbeat episode, I think. Yeah, because you're recovering from COVID, and yes. um, in the UK, like the weather has just started to turn cold, oh. and all the energy prices have just recently rocketed absolutely massively. So oh. we and everybody I know is refusing to put the heating on. Uh, uh. So so we're going to kind of keep huddled up, stay under a blanket. Well, Keep it on the down low. Maybe I think. we shouldn't have come back from hell. Hell's a warm place. You don't need uh, <laughs> higher energy costs there. There's, there's things to be separate. Yeah. Hell ain't so bad, perhaps. Um, but not all is fair in love and war. We watched a couple of war films for you. Um, all Quiet on the Western Front, which just came out on Netflix here yeah. in 2022. Yep, same here. Uh, German director. Who was it, Jimmy? I didn't. You've seen it just uh, It's uh, Edvard Berger. Uh, the director. He, so he directed Deutschland 83, okay. uh, the TV series, which I haven't seen. Okay. Uh, we should do the socials first, though, shouldn't we? Oh, oh, we should. Yeah, yeah always. I'm terrible on socials. Maybe <laughs> I did that subconsciously, intentionally, because I hate Just... it so much. <laughs> I'm not qualified to do it, but I love doing it. On Twitter, we are at Two Real Cinema Club at twitter.com. On Instagram, at Two Real Cinema Club at instagram.com. Uh, read the blog at two real cinema club, excuse me, two real cinema club.com. Email us at two real cinema club at gmail.com. And uh, tell your friends you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else you get your podcasts, and on the big YouTube as big well. YouTube. Yeah. And yeah, tell people. I mean, obviously, give us great ratings if you enjoy the show, and uh, that will bring more people to us. I do have a funny thing about Instagram that happened today because um, we were practicing um, can in <laughs> in my basic leveling my level one English class. And um, so, do you mean you mean can like the International Film Festival, right? No, I wish no. Just that verb, that modal verb to be able <laughs> oh, to. Oh, the verb. <laughs> and um, uh, one of my students was she was using it perfectly she kept saying because she had to pair it with the word follow the verb follow so she had to make a can sentence or can question with can and follow and she kept saying can you follow me on instagram can you follow me on instagram <laughs> and the thing was is i couldn't hear i mean she has a spanish accent so i couldn't make out instagram exactly and i said no i don't know i don't think so i don't think so what are you saying and then it finally occurred to me what she was saying and says well i can't actually follow you on instagram but i i finally understand yes you're making a great question but it just seemed so poignant that I had no idea what she was talking about, even though she was speaking basic English right to my face. And But she was talking about the social media and whoop, went right over my head. When I was a child, yeah, we had to learn phrases about, you know, where is the, yeah. where is the train station? Yeah. Um, exactly. What time does the cinema open? Whereas these days, it's just, yeah, follow me on Instagram and the rest exactly. will follow. It seemed like a very sophisticated can follow question <laughs> for me. So it just got by me. Uh, but all was well in the end. Um, so those are the socials. Uh, Jimmy, do you want to take it away right off? Yeah, I know absolutely. It's so, so, so all quiet on the Western Front. Yes. Um, so uh, interesting. Directed by Edvard Berger. I don't know whether you've heard of him. He, he directed Deutschland 83. The, no. Uh, um, which, which I also didn't see, um, but that's the only thing that I recognised in his CV. It's been written by Berger um, and uh, Leslie Patterson and Ian Stockhall, who are uh, British, I think Scottish. 
yeah. screenwriters. Leslie Patterson, interestingly, she's taken um, you know, a very standard traditional route into the screenwriting trade. She is um, a world champion triathlete. Yeah. If you go to her website, um, it's all about training for triathlon and uh, you know, she'll do a bit of personal training for you if you can, uh, if you can find her. Um, and then there's like a little bit of her bio just at the very end, which says, oh, I also do other things. Like we recently acquired the rights to All Quiet on the Western Front. We're hoping <laughs> to get it made. So she hasn't updated her website in a long time. Yeah. But uh, yeah, she's, she's taken you know that hoary old route into screenwriting. Yeah, that's sports. just a uh, it's just a BTW for the kids these days. Oh, yeah. By the way, <laughs> I've got this massive picture coming out. <laughs> mm. So um, so it stars uh, Felix Camera. This is his. Um, yeah, his film debut, um, he, who looks to me like a young Richard E. Grant, did you think? Yeah, yeah, I could see um, that. I could see and, that. And uh, Daniel Bruhl is like the only yeah. only name that I really recognised, um, who uh, uh, recently seen in our podcast is the uh, star of The Educators. Yeah. Is, from, it, uh, yeah. yeah, like the early 2000s. Well, it's just wild because now he's playing the middle-aged German guys and I, I still think of him as being a, a young, young dude. Yeah. It's funny, yeah. Growing up before our very eyes. <laughs> was he in, um, oh God, was it, was it Goodbye Lenin? I think he I was, think he was being, yes, yeah, yeah. I think he was. So he had some great rules, uh, roles right there at the turn of the millennium. Um, and then these days, you know, he's, he's, um, he's like representing Germany for the Marvel Cinematic Universe, isn't he? Mm. So he's Baron, Baron something. That's right. Baron Munchausen, Baron wow. something for, um, for the MCU. So he's getting all the gigs. He is he is the international representation of Germany. So the film is based on the 1928 novel by Eric Maria Remarque, um, a German writer. He was a conscript in the First World War. He was injured. He's sent away from the front. He ended up being a teacher. Um, he wrote his book in 1927, struggled to find a publisher for it for a while. Um, uh, but then when it was published in 1928, it became um, a massive bestseller it sold two and a half million copies in the first 18 months of publication i now i i think i was asked to read or we read some of all quiet on the western front when i was at school um and uh i don't think i read the whole book incidentally i did read it this year it's been on my list of movie of uh, books to read um, and i got to it earlier this year so i was feeling a little bit smug that i've done my homework for the for the pod months ago it was filmed in 1930 um, it was filmed again in 1979, a TV movie with Ernest Borgnine. Uh, the book itself was banned in Germany in 1933 by the Nazis. Uh, uh, Eric Maria Remarque, he uh, fled the country, um, but his sister Elfrida remained in Germany. She was executed by the Nazis in 1943, I think in lieu of them being able to execute him for, for putting down the Reich. Could I interrupt for just a moment? I'm all ears. Do you guys have teachers' pet? Or teachers' pets in uh, England, or brown noses. Yeah, that, that's a thing. Yeah, that's a thing. Yeah, it's okay, not. Okay. It's not just a Van Halen song. It's like, a, it, is it a Van Halen song? It's, yeah. Anyway, yeah, that's a thing. No, yeah. I think Van Halen was hot for teachers. That's a different story, uh, Jimmy. That was it. Yeah. I just want to let <laughs> so, our, our listeners should know that so you I'm are choking on my drink listening to Van Halen. Sorry. Yes. Carry on. <laughs> our listeners should know that you are very studious. You're a great student, and you definitely are trying to get to some brownie points or brown nose points. Or <laughs> you're, you're the teacher's pet on this. I'm the uh, teacher's pet this podcast week. for sure. Okay. I'm sorry. Go on. I should have. I'm sure I brought you an apple. So, okay, so so um, the film is, uh, having recently read the book, the film is a reasonably loose interpretation of the events uh, in the book. So um, it opens up uh, with a, a fox in a burrow, um, which is not the opening that I was expecting. 
Um, and it kind of becomes a bit of a theme uh, in the film. So uh, Fox is woken up by distant explosions and uh, we cut to a battle um, on the fields uh, in uh, 1917 in the First World War. Um, so there's a long tracking shot. We follow a soldier called Heinrich uh, and the, the film really wants us to know that his name is Heinrich because everyone is calling this guy Heinrich, Heinrich. Um, we follow him, we track him over the top, uh, onto the, the wasteland. Um, it's a very vicious, brutal uh, fight scene. Um, people are smashing into each other with axes and uh, shooting each other with guns, chucking grenades at each other. It's extremely violent, literally explosive opening. And uh, at the very climax of this very initial fight in the first couple of the mi uh, minutes of the movie... Um, just as another guy gets smashed in the face, uh, you get a smash cut to the title All Quiet on the Western Front. And I don't know whether you did at this moment in the film. I laughed. Um, it seemed like such a um, such an overblown irony mm. um, that they were putting up this title All Quiet on the Western Front yeah. after you'd seen this this um, enormous, brutal battle. I'm sure that's not the effect that they were aiming for um but it the, the timing of that scene really felt like a comedy sketch to me yeah well i think that there are a lot of these very quick uh, and very massive uh, juxtapositions and a lot of them are ironic throughout the film so i think it, it's consistent with what was going to happen throughout but it is kind of jarring yeah 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 but the, outset, the other yeah. juxtapositions didn't make me laugh but this one did yeah, i don't know yeah. i think that tells you more about me than it does about the film <laughs> so so we we follow uh paul uh, Paul, played by Felix Camera, um, and his friends, they're 17 years old, uh, coming out of school with their uniforms on. They're signing up to join the German infantry. Um, Paul, signing up against his parents' wishes, his friends kind of cajole him or encourage him or bully him, um, pressure him into joining up, uh, and he fakes his father's signature, and uh, they get very excited about going away to the front and marching on Paris uh, in a few weeks' time. There's a, a rousing speech by one of their teachers and they mm -hmm. all go off to collect their uniforms and Paul's uniform has got the name Heinrich mm -hmm. sewn into the collar. Um, it's, I think, a really lovely opening that, um, uh, again, has no um, no connection to the, to the book, but um, the film follows the story of Heinrich's coat, yeah. Uh, for the first five minutes. So we see Heinrich wearing his coat. Heinrich gets killed. Um, and then the coat is peeled off him on the battlefield, yeah. uh, taken back from the front lines, washed, sewn, repaired, um, stitched together, given to the new set of recruits. It's um, a, you know, a cute, clever way into the story, actually. I rather enjoyed it. Yeah, that was great. And then... Uh... Doesn't Paul say, oh, I think this is someone else's jacket. And then the, the sort of the guy at the table who's enlisting him just pulls the tag right out, throws it away. There's Heinrich. Goodbye. Hello, Paul. Yeah. You'll yep. be the next yep. to die in this coat. It's <laughs> kind of the, the sentiment there. So, uh, so the boys uh, pretty much immediately get taken off to the front. Uh, and it is hell, um, as, as we were promised. Characters are, are blown up, literally, uh, into pieces in front of us, gassed, shot, crushed. Um, uh, this part of the film really reminded me of the opening of Save it, Saving Private Ryan. Yes. Um, it has you know that, that feel of uh, brutality, hopelessness. Um, but there is another strand to the story, again, which doesn't come from the book. So uh, Ertzberger, 
um, is uh, some kind of German official. He's played by Daniel Brühl. He mm. is keen to negotiate an armistice um, from the point of view of the German high command. So we see him uh, counting up the names uh, of all the young men who've been killed. Um, he wants to persuade the high command that you know, we're not going to win. Uh, we need to cut our losses and surrender or at least have a ceasefire as soon as possible. Um, otherwise, we're just going to lose so many more young men. So we follow his story um, while uh, Powell's story, Paul's story, continues um, rather episodically. Um, so we have various episodes of them in the trenches. Uh, France, one of uh, Paul's friends, he spends a night with a French woman and he comes back with a little bit of her underwear, which they pass around the, the barracks. Um, his older friend, Cat, and he, they steal a goose, which they cook and eat. Um, they go on an expedition to find missing soldiers who have been killed by gas. This is a fairly episodic mm. uh, piecemeal middle section to the film, uh, juxtaposed against uh, Erzberger's struggle to get on the train, make the journey to meet the French and try and get uh, a signature on some papers to say that there's a, a ceasefire. So he does eventually meet the French. Um, the French tell them, we're not going to negotiate. These are the terms of the ceasefire. You've got 72 hours to accept it. And there will be no ceasefire until you've signed the paper. So Erzberger, uh, very conscious that every hour that he spends not signing this paper is going to cost more lives, um, has to wait to get uh, the thumbs up from the high command. And in the meantime, um, Paul and his buddies are um, still being bombarded on the front line. The paper finally gets signed with 45 minutes of the film to go, uh, which surrounded me. Uh, surprised me and um it turns out that because the french want to wait until there's a rice round number the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month there's going to be another six hours of hostilities before they'll um declare the peace and so the, the third act the final climax of the film is that uh, friedrichs who is the, the commandant uh, for paul's uh, division he wants a victory before the end of the war. So in the final 15 minutes of the war, before the ceasefire that will be announced at 50, at uh, 11 o'clock, um, uh, his, his troops are all pushed into making a final attack uh, and Paul is finally killed uh, in trench warfare. He's the, like, the last man to die before 11 o'clock in the morning. Um, and uh, so we end with this you know, extremely long-held shot of his uh, face. At last at peace, I suppose, um, in the trenches while everybody around him packs up and goes home. Uh, how familiar were you with the book and the story? Not at all. Not at all. I think, like you, it might have been on a list of recommended books. I don't think we read it as part of school. I don't think we read an excerpt. So I knew the title. I've heard it a million times. I don't think I've seen any of the films that you mentioned. So I actually came to it pretty, um, pretty like a novice, like a, an absolute newbie. I didn't know much about it at all. In fact, I had always assumed that it was written more from the the Allied or um, the, ah. the, the the other side. You know, I didn't know it was a German tale, so that was interesting to me. There are a lot of differences um, uh, from the book. There are so, so some similarities, but many differences. I think um, I tried to make a little list of the things that I remembered mm -hmm. vividly from the book which don't appear in the film. Um, there's a big emphasis on boots that uh, one of Paul's comrades in the, in the book 
um, you know, gets injured and he's dying and all of his friends gather around and they're all kind of trying to control him and trying to encourage him to, to hang on when they know that it's hopeless. Mm-hmm. But all of them are secretly eyeing his boots yeah. because he has these fantastic boots and they're just sort of waiting for him to die so they can get the boots. Um, the scene uh, in the movie where France goes off and he spends a night with a French woman is much more elaborate in the in the book. I think okay. all the boys go off and they, they find, uh, you know, these French girls and they spend the night with them and um, it's a much bigger event um, probably bigger than all of those missing events um, high in the book halfway through the story Paul um, has a trip home so he is sent home from the front and oh, has to spend really? a couple of weeks on leave trying to live as a civilian oh gosh and uh, all the kind of older adults in the town are asking him oh you know how's it going at the front well done We're, we must be close to victory you're doing a great thing for the country yeah and they're all kind of giving him their little tips and their bits of strategy. You know, and he knows that this is all you know, utterly hopeless and he feels lost and completely unable to fit yeah. in now. He's been institutionalised by the army and yeah. can't live a civilian life. And at the same time, his, you know, his mother is dying, um, but neither of them want to say it out loud. And he's sort of aware that he's never going to see his mother again, but he's, he hasn't got the, the mental equipment to speak to her anymore. Hmm. It's very touching and it provides this great kind of contrast. Yeah. To the brutality of the battle in the middle of the book, which I think um, is one of the things that really elevates the book. And it's interesting that that is missing from the film. I think a lot of these things lend a lot of depth um, to the character of Paul, which is sort of missing from the film, I thought. Um, I enjoyed the performance, but he's kind of the embodiment of innocence, I think, in this film. Yeah, yeah. And not given a great deal of depth. He's just kind of wide-eyed and naive um, and having his soul crushed right in front of us. And, you know, he's not allowed very much more depth than that. No, I think the film uh, certainly benefits from just sort of archetypal characters uh, with the commandant yeah, as well. Yeah. And you've got the bureaucrat and then the yeah, the young guys. Then, and Kaz is the, Kaczynski's the, or I guess they call him Kat, um, kind of the, he seems like the more experienced veteran. It turns out he's not that much older than the others, but um, yeah. he's definitely presented as a veteran. So you had all the the archetypes. You even had the drill sergeant a little bit. It was very brief when they were first taking their guns into into the front, I think. So you had a lot of the, the classic types, um, but not a lot of depth. I agree with you on that one. I think what the film does really well is the photography. It's, it's a beautiful, fantastic Phenomenal. photography yeah, in yeah. this film. And it's, uh, uh, it, it, it communicates ugliness really well. I think that's hard to do. Like the, the, it's a very beautiful film, even though a lot of its images are um, very ugly, obviously. Um, but, you know, like the, the, the comparison of flares to actual um, uh, gunfire, you know, there's some beautiful shots where you're yeah. just seeing the sky light up with flares, comparing that with, you know, in a, in a second's change on the on screen, all of a sudden it's more like mortar fires that are so ugly. So, I mean, it does a really great job of balancing beautiful filmmaking but communicating what it's supposed to do. This film is supposed to be ugly, and it's that as well. It's very visceral and bloody. There are, you know, very explicit stabbings, mutilation. Yeah. The camera really focuses in on the injury. I was quite surprised to see that in the UK it carries a 15 certificate. Before watching it, I was thinking, well, maybe the children would like to watch this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and my two are 15 and 12. And I was kind of thinking, oh, this could be a you know, valuable educational experience and I'll learn a bit about the First World War. And I tell you what, I'm glad they didn't see it. Mm. My goodness. Um, nightmare for years, I think. Um, it is extremely explicitly brutal yeah. and bloody. Um, but the battle scenes have been very skillfully filmed. I mean, um, 
scenes where the tanks are introduced. I think it's, you know, it's a great bit of ah, cinema. Yeah. Scenes where um, guys turn up with flamethrowers. Like, like they have stepped straight out of hell. I mean, it's Percent, very skillfully yeah. done. Yeah. Um, you can really feel the terror in your gut. Yeah. It's the first time I think I've seen a film that has portrayed a literal red mist that, uh, that the soldiers oh. are running into. Yeah. The machine gun fire is just vaporising these boys mm-hmm. who are leaping over the over the edge uh, and turning them into a red mist. I mean, yeah. it's, um, it's astonishing. It's technically, you know, very accomplished, I think. A terrific yeah. achievement. But um, I'm not sure that the writing and the character development quite matches that visual level of achievement. I would agree with you there. I think this is a, a great film. I think it's a masterpiece. I wasn't looking at it um, so much for great character development because I don't. I never. I guess I never thought it was going to deliver that anyway. So I was. I was in this film from the very beginning. I thought it was fantastic, um, and I did write down at one point a couple of things. I wrote uh, that this is essential violence versus something that we've seen in maybe The Northman or or yeah. some of the other, or uh, RRR, some of these other films we've seen recently where there's just violence on top of violence. This is really violence that's communicating how awful and how idiotic war is and it's this is really an anti-war film as far as i could see um by people who at least have some contact with the first world war and knew how to communicate it on screen so i think the violence does what it should in my mind here is that it's just showing how stupid this is to put two armies digging trenches 100 yards from each other and spending all this time waiting around to attack each other and you know there's just so much carnage there's so much so many bodies that are just sacrificed for absolutely no reason whatsoever and i think this film does that really well and as a result yeah maybe you sacrifice the character development of those bodies but that's not why they're there in the first place i think they're they're supposed to be numbers more than they are names and characters i think and then the film does that really well I did. Uh, it did make me chuckle when I read the Wikipedia page. Mm-hmm. And one of the summaries uh, uh, it says uh, critics praised the film for staying faithful to the book's anti-war message. Okay, yeah, which did make me think. Well, you don't say. I would be quite surprised if someone had made a book of All Quiet on the Western Front and you'd come out punching the air like, <laughs> like you'd seen Top Gun Maverick. Yeah, can't wait to get down to the front. Yeah, it looks great. <laughs> But it does it. It does it well in so many different ways. Um, I'll, I'll talk about a couple images that stuck with me. Um, early on, uh, soldiers bailing water out of a trench uh, or out of the, yeah, this trench using their helmets, and it just seems so futile. And it's like you, you know that water's going to fall right back in. You're no gonna, you're going to have to get right back up and bail it out again with your helmet, making no difference whatsoever. Um, I thought it was just such a great comment on war. Um, there's another the be, one of the best dead horses I've ever seen. It's I think it comes before that very last battle where the commandant sends them back in to to fight for 15 minutes before 11 o'clock. Um, and the first thing you see before they head out into the the no man's land is a dead horse, and it just kind of <laughs> sits there. And it's like we're beating a dead horse. I mean, it was just there were just <laughs> images like that that were so compelling. And then in terms of some of those juxtapositions, I think the most um, Intense one is when Paul is sort of he's isolated on the front line. The tanks have come through, the the flamethrowers have come through, and he's basically fenced, faced with this one Frenchman in this like gigantic puddle of blood. They're down and low, and he has to kill this man basically with his hands again and again. He actually it's a long death because Paul's really struggling with it. He's never really looked a man in the face for very long and had to kill him, and he's doing that. And the juxtaposition after he's finally killed him it goes right to the. I guess he's, you said he's a commandant. He's and he's eating 
in at a long table, I believe. He's just in yeah. luxury, eating fantastic foods, and his uh, his you know his uniform is perfectly starched and pressed and beautiful. But he's sending people out into the under the front lines to do what Paul just had to do, and I think that again, just great images. I think it's just such a commentary, and you know this this film was made probably long before uh, Vladimir Putin went into. Um, uh, no. Ukraine, but I, de- I thought Putin immediately when I saw this guy sending people into war for no reason other than basically tradition, because his own father fought for Otto von Bismarck in the day, and and victory was the the thing above all else. Uh, but there's no reason to fight, um, and this guy's just sending them in and not doing anything himself because he's got that power to. And I just thought, oh, this is Putin. It was timed perfectly in that way, but it was probably you know shot and and written before that, but. Um, it's just a great commentary on war, and I think it was done really, really well. The music, too, the sounds, and, and you just saw it a couple hours ago, you said. So some of those, some of that music is still sort of resonating in me. It's just this big, electronic, you know, didn't really meet the, the era well. It's not 1914 uh, and 1918 music. It's definitely yeah, it's modern It's anachronistic, music. isn't it? It's anachronistic, but it's so effective. And, uh, yeah, I just thought it was really, really well done. So I was, I mean, I'm not a big fan of war films in general, and... I guess I don't look for a great story. I think this one has a better story than the next one we will talk about after our break eventually. <laughs> but um, I think it's it, it it's compelling. I understand why you would maybe take that scene out with Paul going back home because you're already working on a couple of different uh, locations and you're sort of bouncing around a little bit. Um, so I think taking him out of that scene would probably just further confuse or might dilute the the effect of some of the war scenes because there are some homey war scenes when they when they're when the core is just sort of holed up in a french farmhouse somewhere and stealing geese and all that uh, yeah yeah um you know you've got some of these slow moments in war where they're a couple miles away from the front they're not really fighting um and it's it's hard to place it all together because the french and the germans meet on a train when they're negotiating the uh the treaty. Um, so you're already kind of working in a couple of different locations or a couple of environments. So I think if you'd thrown Paul back to the family and the and to his hometown, it would probably just uh, kind of dilute the story a bit more. But I, I would counter argue that it's not a short film, is it? It's no. like two hours twenty. I, yeah. I would think you know what there probably is a bit of time for a bit more character development. Actually, I don't know. If we haven't even we don't even follow very many characters. No. Um, so I wonder whether maybe there is a little bit of space for that. I'm glad you mentioned the horse thing, actually, because yeah. there is this big theme of like animals and captivity in mm-hmm. the film. They keep going back to. They start with the foxes. Yeah. Um, but there's things like um, this little beetle that cat keeps in, yes, a, that's in, right. a, in a matchbox, isn't it? Yeah. And then you know, when they, they come back to the farmhouse one night and some, someone has captured a moth in a glass. Yeah. So it's kind of repeating imagery about about animals in captivity. Yeah, well, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to accept the fact that you as a human might have less freedom than an insect or a mammal uh, that can get out of a trench. I mean, the 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 ability of a fox to get out of trouble um, is certainly a valorous, I guess. I uh, I agree with you. I think it is a great achievement. It's a terrific film, but I still think we can place a call to the cliche squad. Cliche squad. Because I, I have some cliches too, but yeah, but I don't know. The big, the big one that got me was just yeah. um, this notion of the like the top brass eating fine food. Yes, I feel right. like I've seen yeah. a little too often this scene of of young being being slaughtered while some guy with a moustache complains that his croissant is not fresh. Yeah, feel like, you know, what? I mean, it gets the idea across, but I feel like I've seen that. Yeah, that 
notion used a little too often for yeah. me to feel comfortable that it's it's you know that it should be in the film. Yeah, fair play. And I think they do it on both sides, don't they? The French complain of the croissants. They do, the yeah. And then, yeah. Have, and then the German is there just eating and dining and drinking wine and <laughs> like slurping his coffee. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, good. That's a good one. My my cliche I kind of I, I don't want to show my hand too soon, but I've seen this in many films too. And and the reason I say that is because we're, we're going to get to the same cliche in the next film, <laughs> which is the, uh, the gun as your lover, treat it like a, you're a woman and uh, go to bed yeah. with it. Cause we see that in both films, um, uh, coupled with the, the, you know, the intense drill instructor, I think, which we see in both films again. Um, I think that is uh, cliche squad worthy as well. Phone the squad. Yeah, but I mean, for me, if you're communicating that idea about how the people who really pay for war are the are the people who have no business in it, they don't really have a, a, a say in it, they don't have uh, any skin in the game, I guess, other than their own skin, which gets shot up. I mean, I think I think that's a, that's a compelling image. But yeah, you're probably right, overdone in the sense of a, a dining well while others are barely dining. So, well, you know what? Overall, for a Netflix original... Yeah. And- after doing the pod for a while, I start to get a sinking feeling whenever I see a Netflix original come up. You know yeah. what? For a Netflix original, this is pretty goddamn good. I thought it was very good. I did watch it in German reading subtitles, which was a good option. But actually, the English that I looked at, it didn't look very badly dubbed. Uh, so you could see it in English if you wanted to as well. I don't know if you did. I wasn't even aware there was an uh, English dub, actually. Yeah, yeah. You could uh, you could select a bunch of different uh, hey. uh, languages to to listen to the film in, so... I'm going to say, yeah, I would give that one a thumbs up. I really I really enjoyed it. I'm not someone who likes war films in general, but I was pleasantly surprised, and I thought it was very well done. It was a really good uh, good bit of filmmaking. Right. Well, let's have a break. Yeah. Um, and then when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, you know, another war film. I think a war film which will certainly have been seen and watched very closely by the people who made All Quiet on the Western Front. We'll come back and we'll That's talk perfect. about Full Metal Jacket. Perfect. <laughs> So, Andres, it's uh, Christmas coming up, right? Yes. Oof. And uh, time to buy people gifts. Yeah, I don't like that. Part. You have a struggle with gifts? Every year. We've done some different things in my family, but um, still, even buying one or two gifts. Oof. Well, I'm happy to announce that uh, from this year, you can buy a Two Real Cinema Club gift for your loved ones. We are launching the Two Real Cinema oh. Club Sub Club Ooh. Geek Club box sub it's a new subscription box that you or your loved one can enjoy every month for just 59.99 a month or even less if you pay more you can join for six months pay 62 pounds a month or sign up for a year and pay just 71 pounds a month plus a few small additional charges (laughs) but you may well be asking what is in the two real cinema club sub club geek club box sub box well every month we will send you an amazing gift box full of great free stuff that you've paid for. Every box contains a T-shirt in a random size featuring a quote from a film that you haven't seen, plus literally two or three other things that you don't want. (laughs) You can subscribe at a higher tier and get up to seven things you don't want every month. Gifts include a handful of water-damaged postcards featuring anime characters that you can't identify, a plastic figurine of a Star Wars character that you're pretty sure was never in any of the films that you saw or a Harry Styles badge with the name Harry Styles 
written with a deliberate misspelling that means that we can avoid paying royalties. <laughs> You'll also get an HD DVD of a film from the early 2000s that you don't remember. Maybe starring Hayden Christensen, maybe starring Jessica Alba. If you're lucky, maybe both of them will be in it. And best of all, one month later, you'll get it all again. Now, if you're not happy with your subscription, it can be cancelled at any time by calling the number that we don't publish anywhere. Use that number to get another number, which will give you a website code to a page with another number on it, which you have to call between 9 and 10 on a Tuesday and ask to speak to Jeff. If Jeff's in, your sub will be cancelled in 20 working days. But bear in mind that Jeff only works one day a week and it's not Tuesday. Cancelled subs will continue to be charged, of course, but you just won't get your stuff. And for that, you should be grateful. So <laughs> how, what do you think? The Two Real Cinema Club, Sub Club, Geek Club, Box Sub. You want stuff, we will send you stuff. Forever. Best Christmas And we are back. And next up is Full Metal Jacket, uh, Stanley Kubrick's film from 1987, um, starring Matthew Modine as Joker, uh, Vincent D'Onofrio as uh, Gomer or Gomer Pyle. I think they started calling him Pyle towards the end of the, uh, right. the part of the film where he was. And I think it was R. Lee Emery as the drill sergeant. Yeah. Um, those are sort of the main characters in the in the film. Um, I think I'd read somewhere. I don't. I don't know if I believe this, but this was. Stanley Kubrick's last film or next to last film released in the United States or something like that, which is 87. And then I think, um, what's the big one with the cruises? Eyes Wide Shut was uh, the only one after this. Is yeah, that right? his penultimate film. Which yeah. is about 11 years later, something like that, 11, 12, yeah. 11, 99 or 2000. So very interesting. Well, this, this came seven years after The Shining, didn't it, I think? I mean, you know, he took his time. Okay. All right. I, I remember being surprised when I read that. but And I also remember being surprised by the film because I thought I had seen this film, but I don't think I had. Oh. I'm lying. I was lying. I thought, yeah, I'd seen that one. I probably had confused it well enough with uh, Platoon, which came out, I think, maybe a year earlier. Yeah, like about and there was um, Hamburger Hill came out about the yeah, same time yes, as well. I remember and... films in there, and I, I, I don't think I'd seen Full Metal Jacket. So it um, it was new to me. It was based on a book by Gustav Hasford, who I guess was a Marine. He's got a very German-sounding name, but um, it might be an American. I'm not really sure. Yeah, and he's American. And yeah. you've read this. So this was based on his I, yeah. thing called The Short Timers, I believe. The Short Timers, yeah. So I, re- I we watched two films and I read two books God, for this part. Incredible. So well-educated. Absolutely. The you, book The book is um, in some ways very similar to the film okay. and in some ways extremely different. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll lean on you for that and I'll give you, as your teacher, I'll give you a star, a sticker <laughs> star for Thank reading you, the books and watching the films. <laughs> uh, apparently Kubrick read it, wrote it mostly with Michael Hare and then um, I guess he, in a couple of different articles I'd, I'd read that he had talked with Hasford over the phone a bunch but met with him maybe just once at most. <laughs> Um, so. I think I read a story about this that yeah. apparently yeah, he met with Hasford once yeah. that um, he, Michael Hare, the other writer, yeah. um, like hosted um, like a dinner as so, so Gustav okay. Hasford came to Kubrick's house. Uh-huh. And after about half an hour, Kubrick passed a little note under the table to Michael Hare, which said, yeah. I cannot stand this man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think he never met him again. 
Oh, my. Well, yeah, it, it, you sort of get that sense because there's not much made of, <laughs> of Hasford at all, but it's definitely, you know, credited to being written by uh, Kubrick and Hare. Shot mostly in England, which at first I was surprised about, but uh, yeah, a little shot bit. Shot entirely in, in England. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I think a little bit was done in California is what I'd read, but, uh, ah. um, and they'd had, they had import like plastic trees, plastic palm trees from from, yeah. <laughs> from absolutely, Asia. Yes. Yeah, pretty wild. So a, I think uh, a lot of it shot at Beckton Gasworks and the Isle of Dogs. Oh, so yeah, it's yeah, just Isle like of Dogs East def- London. Definitely came up, yeah. Wow. Well, it passes for the for Vietnam pretty well, I would say. Yeah. Um, great opening image. I love the 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 military, uh, the Marine recruits. I guess getting their hair just shaved off in a in a barber shop, and it's 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 kind of nice. Uh, kind of, they're sort of they eventually steal their names um, uh, via the uh, the drill sergeant who starts giving them names based on their you know one little piece of personality that he sees in the first meeting with them. But um, it, they kind of lose their identities immediately because they've lost their hair, and they're all uniformed up at uh, Paris Island and the Marine uh, uh, drill camp or a training camp. Um, it sort of starts out as a multi-protagonist thing among the recruits. It sort of eventually becomes Joker's film, and Joker is the the name given to the Matthew Modine character um, by their uh, drill sergeant. Who, yes, it's true, um, cliche. Um, <laughs> seems to he's profane. He's tough on them. He's uh, tough as nails, uh, yelling all the time, but um, working them into uh, proper Marines. Um, but yeah, the cliche squad would definitely get a call on that, I think. But he is excellent, and uh, Kubrick has the camera kind of rolling in circles uh, in a lot of these scenes where they're right there in their bunkhouse, and he's drilling them uh, and sort of breaking them down mentally as well. And one one character played by uh, Vincent D'Onofrio, Pyle, he starts calling him Gomer Pyle and then just Pyle. He's really struggling. Joker mentors him, trying to help him with his gun and his marching style and all that. Um but Pyle just messes up again and again, and then everyone has to start paying for his mistakes. And there's this one scene where they're all putting, I guess, soap in their pillowcases or bags, and they just, in the middle of the night, they wake him up by beating him. Yeah. Uh, and he really loses his humanity, and that's going to play out farther on down the line. But um, it just goes to show, you know, how tough things were in their camp and how uh, difficult it would be for someone who's a little bit more sensitive or not um, naturally uh, tough, I suppose. Um, I mean, I'm guessing yeah. would, today would we not maybe think that Pyle has special needs? It's not that he's sort of dumb and can't do it. He's actually you know, he's kind of can't quite do these things. Yeah, and and Vincent D'Onofrio plays that beautifully. He does. He has sort of a similar character on American television. I forget what it is. One of the like the uh, SUV shows or the um, oh, really? Law and oh. Order or some oh. spinoff of that, where he he either play. I think he plays. Um, a bipolar character or something like that. So I don't know if it's something that is close to him personally or something that he does well as an actor. He's known doing it well. I mean, this is 87. So this is, you know, we're looking at 35 years ago now. Um, so they're all young men, like Matthew Modine and, and, and Vincent D'Onofrio are very, very young at this time. So it's, yeah. you're, you're seeing them as kids, really. And th- that's the other thing. They're just young. You know, they're impressionable kids. Uh, Marines, you know, it's something you enlist in. Um, <clears throat> they have to accept a wide variety of people. So you'd think that they'd be... Um, sensitive to that somehow, but I think you know that part of the whole the drilling here was just like drilling that sensitivity and that humanity out of them, just to turn them into soldiers. So, I mean, that's um, the entire theme. Of, I guess the theme of the, the film, isn't it, is dehumanization. Yeah, the war is hell. Yeah. Militarism is dehumanizing. That's you know, that's like the the, the take home message. Yeah. It's almost that you have to dehumanize people if you're going to ask them to go dehumanize other people somehow. So it's a yeah, it's definitely rough. Um, 
lots of archetypes of characters like soldiers and drills and uh but it's interesting joker is a journalist or he wants to be a journalist and he um is uh interested in uh covering the war just as much um but the, the act one curtain is really quite tragic this this is a lot of people have written about this film as like two films in a film because yeah. the the opening is really all about their training at um Paris Island and it's probably 45 minutes 48 minutes um and Gomer Pyle Pyle the D'Onofrio character kind of just loses it uh, loses his uh, mental stability by by the end of the whole training and he's just sort of lounging around in the bathroom singing at night holding a gun he ends up killing um the sergeant the drill sergeant and himself in the bathroom just as he's completed training so there's this real down moment at the end of the first half uh. of the film um, before we get into their actual lives in Vietnam. And then that's, again, that's kind of where, to a certain extent, I think Pyle was carrying the film along with Joker or their friendship was, but then all of a sudden it really becomes uh, Joker's film on his own. He's breaking in as a journalist, as I said, um, and uh, they're trying to win hearts and minds but and win battles at the same time. So it's sort of like using propaganda, I guess, to try and um, win this, this war in Vietnam as well. Um, and they're... I think there's a journalist-style voiceover at the beginning of the film, but then we start to hear them a little bit more. It's not a consistent device in the film. It's not a really strong device yeah. either, I didn't think. Um, and I don't think it really helped the movie very much. Did you did you find any of that coming like right out of the book, the way the book is set up as well, or did, was well, there a relationship to the book in that way? That that part one of the movie, with the whole kind of training sequence going from you know having the haircuts to um, Pyle yeah. finally you know killing... The, the sergeant and himself. I mean, that's uh, lifted very, very directly from the book. A okay. lot of the dialogue is lifted straight from the book. The events are written straight, uh, straight out of the book. Um, but that takes the first seventeen percent of the book okay. to tell that bit of the story. Yeah. Um, the book is largely, I would say, it's. Um, I, I mean, the book is great. It's um, poetic. It varies a lot in style. It's written in the first person mm. and present tense. So it does kind of read a little bit screenplay sometimes. But the, the book is it has sort of three parts. and It's largely three big set pieces with some connective tissue. And the okay. three big set pieces are the training montage that yeah. we see in the film, very much as the book. And then there are two different sections where soldiers are pinned down by a sniper. Oh, okay. And the film sort of conflates those two sections into, into one. one. Okay. Um, and that's kind of the, the shape of the book. And it feels very much like a memoir, is it? Or is it a fictional piece? Uh, and it, it feels very authentic. Okay. It, um, I think I think um, kind of uh, Hasford said that he never actually murdered anyone himself. Okay. He was more a danger to himself than he was to the Viet Cong. Yeah. But he, um, but uh, he certainly he did serve. Um, and it reads as a you know very authentic okay. um, telling of you know the story of a young man in Vietnam. Okay. All right, we'll comment on that a little bit later as we wind down. Perhaps um, I love one quote, which I thought was pretty uh, pretty well delivered by the editor uh, to the Stars and Stripes uh, magazine staff of writers, which uh, Joker is a part. Um, it's a new shit sandwich, and everybody is going to have to take a bite. <laughs> <laughs> so that sort of summed up the whole film. I think it sums up a good bit of well, almost all of Vietnam as well. Um, and it seems to be a turning point in the war is this the Tet Offensive and um, yeah. uh, Joker and sort of his photographer, Raptor Man, are sort of um, 
dragged into the Tet Offensive as journalists, but they're also firing weapons. So they are sort of embedded, and they're starting to see some uh, action on the battlefield as well. This is one of the best details of the whole film that I liked um, is when Raptor Man is trying to take a picture and his hand is shaking so much on the camera that he can barely, uh, you know, focus very, very barely take a picture. And I thought, well, that, that's that's perfect. This guy's absolutely scared. <laughs> he's not seen any action really. All of a sudden, he's in battle and he's gonna he's gonna show it um, visually. He's gonna show it physically with a shaking camera. I thought that was really nice. Um, and there's also this sort of film crew filming the lives of the Marines in Vietnam. Yeah. So it becomes this sort of a documentary within a film that they cut to a little bit with uh, questions and answers of the soldiers uh, in the battlefield. Um, uh, for me, it was about this point that I thought this kind of feels like a plotless being there <laughs> experience film. I really, yeah. the other, the other film, All Quiet on the Western Front definitely has like story structure. And that's why I was curious about this as a memoir, um, because it feels really, uh, authentic. Yes. But adrift in terms of narrative, I thought, um, it feels like a series of sketches, I think in a way, it really does. it's like you know, yeah, a sketch of them it, being, you know, in the, in the kind of the, the, the story room for the Stars and Stripes magazine. Yeah. yeah. It's then a kind of, yeah, there's a bit of action during the Tet Offensive, but then there's like, yeah, there's like a sketch of film crew interviews, which is sort of quite funny. Yeah. And then there's like a couple of encounters with sex workers as well, which again, like, like little sketches. Yeah. No, nothing really connects to anything else. It's I, just yeah. a bit of this, bit of that, bit of the other. Yeah. And I, I struggle a little bit because I, I looked at Rotten Tomatoes. It's 90-something percent fresh and I'd heard so much about this film, but I wasn't really convinced about it uh, as a real, you know, coherent story. And I didn't find it to be a great film, but I, I did feel, okay, this is probably pretty accurate. Uh, a lot of war is boring, whereas a lot of war in the other film was much, <laughs> much too exciting, I think. But um uh, the platoon that they're with uh, sort of takes a village, costs them a couple of uh, dead comrades. So they're really f- seeing the reality of the war finally from the journalist's perspective. Um, there is that moment of prostitution, uh, which is kind of like just doubly and triply racist. It's There's a lot of bad <laughs> stuff going on at once. But the, I think the, the idea that you get is the men deserve a reward. They've just lost their comrades. Men in uh. war need prostitutes. Uh, and they'll fight over them and underbid to to pay as little as possible for the prostitute. Um, yeah, it was very, I mean, probably a very realistic scene in some ways, but also just, just amazingly uh, racist on a couple of different fronts. I suppose it's an 80s film about a 60s yeah. time period, isn't it? It's like a double whammy, I suppose. <laughs> Not a great pairing. Although I, I guess the film is, I think the film is probably self-conscious of its racism. I'm not sure about its attitude to women. We might talk yeah. about that later. Yeah, yeah, that might be it. It's definitely not a great scene. Um, so for for me, this it starts to really lack pace. You think of a war film as kind of having enough action to sustain and have a pace, but it never really gains that much momentum. Um, it doesn't really, yeah, it doesn't like put momentum and pace together uh, in any direction at all. It seems a little directionless. Um, they do reunite with one of their guys from the original uh, boot camp, uh, Cowboy, who's running sort of a unit, uh, and they're trying to take this village, but there's a sniper there who's openly killed a, a number of their soldiers and friends, so they're trying to take out this sniper, um, and they eventually track down that sniper in a building, it's so, and at 
at the expense of Cowboy dying. So there's this added, you know, there, there's that scene of Cowboy dying right in their arms, and it's very intentional, or very emotional, I should say, and they yeah. want they want to get revenge. Um, and then the following action is that they actually end up tracing down the, tracking down the sniper. It ends up being Joker's confirmed kill. There was some mention about, you know, how many kills earlier in the film, and, and Joker finally gets one that's confirmed. Um, it's the sniper, but the twist is that it's a young woman. It's a young Vietnamese girl, yeah. and she's still sort of alive, and they're all sort of wrestling with the, you know, should they kill her? Should they take her in and try and, um, you know, get her medical attention or whatever? Um, and the whole scene plays out. Um, I think, you know, the theme that we're supposed to take away from the whole thing is they're alive. They live through this experience, and they sort of walk back into their next camp kind of victorious, but they're morally deadened, and they've just yeah. killed a young girl to get revenge. And that's more or less where it ends right there. Um, so as I said, uh, for me... With them, sing, with them singing the Mickey Mouse song at the end, isn't it? Yeah. For me, I was underwhelmed again. Um, I think it's, the structure really, I think, works against itself because um, you've just got that long, long first act, which you're right, is probably like a montage in a more modern film of 10 minutes. It's a, a full first act that's pasted onto a second act that doesn't have a lot of... Um, a lot of connection to it, and I don't really think there is really a third act to see about, to, to speak of. I think your way of looking at it might be more accurate of a, a, a number of sketches just kind of hanging together. I think the ironic thing is that there is this tremendous climax when Pyle kills himself. You know, it's almost too early to be the end of the film. It definitely is too early to be the end of the film, so it comes too early in one sense, and it also comes too late in another way because it, it could have been a much shorter first act. So... Um, it's an interesting moment because it's so powerful, but it's I think it's misplaced in the just in the time where it comes in the film. I think I read that uh, Kubrick was interested in experimenting with an unconventional structure. Mm. And this film certainly does have an unconventional structure. The question you have to ask now is, mm, is that unconventional structure actually successful or yeah. would he maybe have been better off uh, sticking to the... You know, the program. Yeah. I I did see this film when it first came out okay. in 1987. Okay. Um, my uh, kind of much cleverer and more cine-literate film uh, friend, um, Jamal, kind of said, oh, there's a new Kubrick film coming out. We should really go and see that. And I was only kind of vaguely aware of who Kubrick was, I think, because I'd seen 2001 as a boy. Um, and when we went to see it in the cinema... Um, I was fairly shocked by this film. Mm. You know, again, it's very violent. Yeah. Um, it's extremely tense. I think there's great control of atmosphere. Um, both the uh, you know the tension of the scene where Pyle um, you know commits his final acts, and the set piece at the end of the film with the sniper. Yeah. I think a real edge of your seat cinematic moments. Mm. I think they're very skillfully made. Yeah. Um, but I agree with you. Yeah, I think that otherwise the connective tissue is a little bit kind of weak and mm -hmm. um, uh, friable. I came away, you know, thinking that it had fairly clearly communicated this notion that war is hell. Yeah. And that militarism is dehumanizing. Um, one thing that I thought um, Full Metal Jacket did a little bit better, I think, um, than All Quiet on the Western Front, was um, this idea about fate being very fickle. That um, I feel a little bit like the characters who die in um, All Quiet often die because, you know, they make a foolish decision or they were weak or, you know, they did the wrong thing. Mm. Um, 
Whereas I feel like in Full Metal Jacket, the reason why characters die is entirely coincidental. It's not the ones who mess up who die. Ones who die are the ones who fate has decided should die. And it's not the most or the least skillful. You know, your abilities don't yeah. really make any difference to whether you're going to make it out or not. You know, it's just some of you will catch a bullet and some of you will not. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt like that, that in a way, was a, a better um, idea about the futility of war um, than just the sheer destruction yeah. that we see in, in, uh, in All Quiet. Yeah. Uh, interesting, this film also has an anachronistic soundtrack, doesn't it? So it it has the um, it has a few sixties songs yeah. in it, a few licensed songs. But there's this kind of early sort of electronic Fairlight yeah. soundtrack um, with sort of you know like samples being played back very slowly, which apparently is done by Kubrick's daughter. Oh, really? Under an assumed name, Abigail Abigail Mead. Huh. Um, it's interesting that the films have those two things in common. Yeah, uh, yeah, because the, the the electronic music of uh, Full Metal Jacket is probably yeah, twenty years beyond uh, the actual setting of the film yeah that makes sense yeah huh. one thing which I'd, I'd never kind of thought about until seeing it again now the the shiny red and white sort of barrack dorm room um, where a lot of that first third of the film happens mm-hmm. and it's like a very highly polished floor and a very yeah. illuminated ceiling and correct me if i'm wrong how well do you know the shining it's been a while but yeah i do i do remember it but yeah you know they're, they're, they're that kind of very very brightly lit red washroom oh. in the shining yeah yeah of where course he, where he meets the kind of like you know the the, the ghost of the the concierge or whatever yeah uh, i thought that seemed really really similar to the barrack room in um full metal jacket sure well the... i don't know whether i was i was just wondering whether you know am i making that up or is that actually you know, like a, a proper kubrick motif could be a kubrick mo- yeah exactly well, those two are what six six years apart and you said yeah there's no film in between those two that he made oh exactly okay. yeah 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 probably I think, you know, you're putting your uh, a director like Kubrick's going to put his own touches on things. And that would make sense. Yeah. Uh, I like what I like what you've said about yeah. like this sort of destiny versus fate kind of uh, theme popping up in in the two films. I mean, I, I, one thing I did like about All Quiet on the Western Front, though, was also the way that, you know, in a, in a straight up American film that doesn't consider those things. Paul probably lives at the end and, you know, goes home and. Um, you know, has a family and all that, and he can talk about the war, but he dies at the end of the film. And I think more compelling was the moment when Kaz dies in that film because um, you're not expecting him to die. The war's basically over. They're both, you think they're both going to survive at that moment. And it's really well done in the sense that he does get shot by a boy who's about the same age that his own son would be ah. if he hadn't died. Um, and the, the filmmakers actually, they, First of all, you don't even know that he's shot for a little while. Then he, you realize he's shot, and then um, he, it even he, Paul even carries him into the camp basically to try and get medical attention. It's not until he's been sitting in that camp waiting for medical medical attention that he's actually that he actually dies, and you learn that he's dead. Um, so I love the way they played with the fate there um, quite a bit. But it's true that like in part, both of those guys can die because they've stolen geese. You know, it's like you have to have a reason to die. You have to have done something. And, you know, from what I could tell, yeah, they've killed people in battle, but does that count? Their fates are, you know, when I think of it, it's a little cumbersome the way it's set up, but I it, I bought it, you know, hook, line, and sinker when I was watching the film because it made, it made such great sense. And it went, it went against a lot of these uh conventions of these guys are the ones we've been following they're the heroes so they're gonna live whereas in you know joker sort of becomes the protagonist accidentally when 
when Pyle dies. And as I said before, you're, you're not really following anyone that closely because, in part, and I think you're, you're spot on on this, anyone could die at any moment. And I think that's, the, that's a theme that comes out probably better in Full Model Jacket, even though it's obviously happening you know, to the, to the, to the, to exponentially in uh, All Quiet on the Western Front. So overall, I take it you weren't that impressed by the Kubrick film? I wasn't blown away. I mean, I'm not a massive Kubrick fan to begin with, um, but I, I, I felt I felt oddly un, unentertained. I guess I wanted to be entertained. That sounds crazy. Ah. It's a war film, but I mean, so I, I enjoyed the realism of it. But it's that Hitchcock thing where sometimes you need to cut some of the realism out in order to get some exciting story going. And I, I was never like just uh, you know sitting with bated breath watching that film. It was more like okay. This is happening for 40 minutes, and then this is happening for 50 <laughs> minutes, and then a little action at the end to give it some, you know, uh, wrap it up as a, with a little bow on it or whatever. But um, I, I never, I, yeah, I never felt that connected to it. Whereas it's it's hard to, you know, take your eyes off the screen on All Quiet on the Western Front. Yeah. I was very impressed by Full Metal Jacket when I saw it as a teenager yeah. um, mm-hmm. and had never seen it again until uh, this week. Um, yeah. Coming back to it a second time round, I still think it's a, I think it's a very good film. I think it's very well made. I think it does feel a little bit loose, and I do have some questions yeah. about about mm-hmm. the structure. But um, I think part of the the cliche of things like the tough drill instructor um, may have originated in part from this film. In the same sure. way that I remember seeing um, Raging Bull and thinking, oh, this is just like all the other boxing pictures, not really realizing that, oh, no, this is the first boxing yeah. picture that did yeah. this. And all the other boxing pictures yeah. have just copied it. Yep. I think um, you're right. I wonder whether Full Metal Jacket has been you know, the source of yeah. some of the, the, the cliches that we now recognize around war movie call storytelling. Back, call back this cliche squad. Don't send them in after all. <laughs> I, th- I, th- I think you're right. I mean, the, those scenes with the, the drill instructor are just, they're so profane, uh, just vulgar, d- grotesque, violent, hilarious. <laughs> I mean, they are fun to watch and they're really fun uh, in their filming too because he's just going around in circles and the camera's just following him and uh, there aren't a lot of cuts in there. So he's coming up with a yeah. lot of long dialogue scenes and pulling them off beautifully. So I, I do agree with you there. I think there's some great elements, but it's funny because that, disappears after 45 minutes or so and then it's a, it really does feel like a completely different film we're trying to bring those two films together i think they are pretty congruent i think i think you know that the anti-war sentiment feels of a fairly similar tone in both yeah. of these films i think they belong together they would happily sit together in a in a uh, a double bill i do think um notably full metal jacket doesn't have you know, the, the cliche that I call the squad over of having the brass eating pastries and smoking cigars. That's true. Um, and I think it's better for it. Mm. But on the other hand, all quiet, I think it is It is more spectacular. It's more spectacular, but less sophisticated. That's what I think. Mm. I mean, in partly it's more spectacular because thanks to digital, um, it's possible to create these enormous vistas without enormous expense. Whereas Kubrick, you had to find an actual gas works and actually dress it as an actual Vietnamese city and then actually blow it up. Yeah. Um, So everything is practical in that film. Whereas I feel like, you know, in all quiet probably there's a lot, which is not practical. Yeah. I I would say that there's a, there's a different level of lawlessness in the two films. Like in, in Mm. full metal jacket, like no one's in control. (laughs) There's nothing (laughs) organized about it. Whereas in all quiet on the Western front, 
they're doing a lot, a lot of lawless stuff. Obviously, there's lots of murder and craziness, but you know, you do feel like there's their commanders, there there's someone who's got their hands on the mechanics and and making things happen. Um, so I think you have to examine those two different levels of of chaos, I guess. But I, I was just going to ask you quickly, because yeah. um, we should wind it down, of course, but um, from the memoir level, I mean, you've done all this research, you've read the two books, you've seen the two films. Um, is there any balance between book and film uh, or a connection between book and film on, on the two that you would mention? Both of the books are quite piecemeal. Um, you know, they're both memoirs. Um, they both don't have a tremendously strong unified through line. Neither mm-hmm. of them have a main protagonist who has a problem to solve and a quest to yeah. go on. Um, they're all, they both read like, well, this happened to me, then that happened to me, and this happened to a guy I knew, but I'm going to put it in the mouth of the, the, the character who's writing the book. Yeah. Um, I, can, I think I can imagine what may have appealed to Kubrick when he read The Short Timers because, uh, you know, there are three big set pieces. Um, they're, they're, the training... Um, section you know is very very similar in the film to the book the sniper section that happens in the middle of the book um, is you know an enormous set piece um, the soldiers are pinned down by a sniper who's hiding in a series of buildings and so the soldiers mm-hmm. manage to flag down um, a tank and the tank um, just demolishes each building in turn um, while the guys who are on foot, they, they're kind of running from one building to another and seeing, oh, is the sniper in here? No, smash this building. Is the sniper in here? No, smash this building. Yeah. But they can't get the timing quite right. And so the buildings right. blow up, but then some of the soldiers fall through the ceiling as the building collapses. Ugh. And, you know, it's a, it's a very, very exciting to 20 or 30 yeah. pages. And I can easily imagine any director reading that and thinking, wow, this would be amazing on screen. Yeah. But when it came to doing it practically, it's just not possible. Um, that you know they they weren't able to either build or find a row of Vietnamese looking houses that they could damage and and, and blow up with a a tank, so sure. the film then ended up kind of conflating that um, part of the story with the second sniper encounter in the book, um, which uh, you know is a, an encounter between oh, I'm trying to think whether I'm not sure if it's the first or the second sniper who is a teenage girl. Um, but basically, those two episodes have both been kind of rolled together into something which was filmable in 1987. Okay. Wow. Um, so, I, both of the films have cinematic. Uh, both of the books have cinematic elements. Um, okay. Both of the films have sort of capitalised on what was good and tried to thin out what wasn't quite so good. Um, yeah. Have they been successful? I don't know. One last thought from me. We we said we would yeah. come back to this. I think All Quiet on the Western Front does take a more modern attitude towards women, doesn't it? Um, that uh, instead of seeing prostitutes as a reward, you, uh, the 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 boys um, who uh, carry this sort of scarf or this undergarment around are actually, yeah, you know, they're kind of sort of yeah, young and naive and and sort of starry eyed, aren't they? Yeah, rather than sort of rapacious and lustful. True. Yeah, and the the displacement of proper suitors for the French women probably off fighting somewhere else. So, yeah, yeah, almost. yep. These are these are the boys they can date, um, but again, you see, again, they've kind of earned their fate. I think everyone who goes off and has an affair with a French woman in that film also gets killed in, in battle. So, <laughs> yes, it's like an eighties horror film, isn't it? Teenagers who have sex will get killed. Yeah, that's how it yeah. works. Nothing is fair in love and war, <laughs> apparently. Um, Excellent. Well, I feel, I feel fairly traumatized by these two films, yes. I must say. Well, we've got further trauma coming in a couple of weeks. We will uh, be reviewing. Uh, 
Wakanda Forever. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the follow-up film to uh, Black Panther. Uh, and we're going to pair that with a Brazilian film from 1984 called Quilombo, which we're, we're going on my memory as being an excellent film. We're going to put those two together and uh, see how they... See how they fare in the two real cinema club treatment. Com- comparing it to Quilombo, I sorry, I was, I was, I was saying uh, comparing it to and then giving you a gap to say it, but I think, no. I think Google Meets has let us down. Oh, I'm sorry, no, I, I did say Quilombo. Yeah, oh, you did say. Oh, yeah. then it dropped out. Oh, I've completely messed it up. Then, in oh, okay. Fact, oh, I think well, I already I ended up. the show, Jimmy. We're into extra time. <laughs> uh, so for this week, I'm going to sign off. Uh, my name is Andres Lorente, and the other guy, and I'm James Speaker, and this has been fun as always. <laughs> See you next time. Okay, thanks. Bye, everyone.